I'm Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. It's so crazy coming into 2018 and, and, and reading all of the coverage of cryptocurrencies and ICOs because it's got that same sort of spirit that I, I don't know if you remember the late 90s when the yeah, first yeah. dot com, you know, pets.com and, you know, all my friends would get up late at night and they'd be buying, you know, IPOs and making, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, if not millions. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, given this is an area that, that, that you're covering from a research and academic perspective, are you seeing all the academics around you now like overnight millionaires? Uh, I think they wish, but they're not. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, how do you how do you reconcile what's sort of happening in this highly speculative market to some of these deeper philosophical and economic and political considerations of the blockchain? Uh, I mean, it, will it all settle down at some point? Do you think? Um, I think it's it's fascinating to see what's happening at the moment. You know, it's. Um, uh, in terms of, of, the, of the blockchain, um, it is exactly as the internet was in 1994. Yeah. And um, um, I was too young by, back then to really be part of the, of the whole, uh, you know, uh, rat race around the internet.com. Um, uh, but, but yes, now I, now I am. And I, and I think I, I like to be part of that. Um, in terms of what's, what's, what you see happening in, in, in the blockchain space, I think it's, it's cr- crazy. You know, look at the cryptocurrencies. It's, it's, and we went from, what is, I think, beginning, beginning 2017, 50 billion market cap to 850 market, billion market cap yeah. uh, today, which is, I think, insane. I think the founder of Ripple is now yeah. the fifth richest person in the world for it's, a little bit. <laughs> hypothetical, yeah, because it's all yeah. on, on paper. And the same with the Winklevoss brothers. You know, they are the first billionaires in cryptocurrencies, uh, but that's all on paper. If, if Bitcoin crashes, which I, which I think it will, um, their, their money is gone. So um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating area. And I think a lot of people see the possibilities of blockchain and the decentralized world. And they see, well, finally, we have a chance to, you know, to get back the power and, and take, take away the power from these monopolies that we, had, that we have created thanks to the internet in, in, from the 1990s. Um, and I think from that perspective, it's, it's absolutely fantastic what's happening. Um, we are in a massive bubble in terms of cryptocurrencies, I think. Um, but the underlying technology, blockchain, and everything that comes with it, the whole blockchain ecosystem, I think is, is revolutionary. So this is high time, I think, to introduce my guest. Uh, for those of you who are expecting 30 minutes about which cryptocurrencies to buy and why, you'll be sorely disappointed. But if you are interested in the future of the firm, uh, the impact of data and artificial intelligence on leadership, uh, you're going to be very excited because I'm talking to Mark von Remenon. That's pretty close. That's pretty close. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Who is a best-selling author, an expert on big data, on blockchain, artificial intelligence, uh, he's currently pursuing a PhD at um, this beautiful UTS building that we're in, designed by uh, uh, Frank, Frank Gehry. Yeah, Frank Gehry, yeah, yeah correct. Uh, and uh, we have recently been acquainted, so it's uh, great to finally meet you in person. Same, and thanks for having me on this podcast. So, so let, let, let's talk a little bit about this, um, uh, about blockchain, because, you know, one of the things I'm finding hard to reconcile is the relationship between ICOs and these new type of blockchain organizations, which people are talking about, um, 
uh, you know, to the to the extreme of potentially a completely decentralized autonomous organization with no human beings and mm -hmm. just smart contracts. So what is the relationship between the ICO and these organizations? Uh, well, the, the relationship between um, uh, decentralized startups that you see coming up and popping up everywhere now and the ICO is that an ICO is a fantastic way to, one, raise funds in a decentralized way because yeah. um, all of a sudden you're not um, uh, have to rely on, on, on venture capital firms, um, but you can sort of reach out to the crowd and, and raise money. But you're not selling shares, are no. you? No, you're not selling shares in, into your company. You're selling um, a, a sort of an IOU, you can almost say. Um, um, it, it's sort of a, it's a token, uh, which basically is worth nothing, uh, but you sell it to people with the idea that it will increase in value. Right. Um, you could compare it to like, like loyalty points at a, at a- Is it like a credit note? Not, yes, sort of. It depends on what kind of uh, token philosophy you have. So what's the intrinsic value uh, linked to the token? Right. Um, so what, what can you buy with this token? Uh, so if, if I go to the casino, I buy chips, that's a token. And um, uh, with that token, I can gamble and, and I hope to increase my value by, by gambling. Um, but outside that casino, you can't really use that, that chip. Uh, right. So with, that's the same thing with, 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 with tokens. You can use them within the platform that created it. Um, you might be able or not be able to exchange them at platforms, um, but that's it. And you have to have this intrinsic value with the token to buy content, to um, perform transactions, uh, to do whatever you want within the startup scene. The, these, uh, I mean, the casino is an interesting example because uh, you, you need these tokens in order to mark the value of the transactions that are happening within the uh, casino. But you also need stability. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, if the tokens were changing and fluctuating in value continuously on the external market, it would undermine the internal economy. Yeah. True. So, you know, by the fact that these, uh, these new blockchain organizations are issuing these highly speculative currencies that people are buying in the anticipation that they're going to go up dramatically. How will they ever be useful? Well, I think that's one of the challenges that we have that we're facing at the moment. Because, uh, as you say, these these tokens have to be sort of stabilized it's over over time. And everyone at the moment we have, we are in this craziness period where everyone thinks oh, I can make an enormous amount of money by investing something that will increase like ten thousand percent in like one month, um, and then I'll be rich. You know, right. Uh, but from a from an organization perspective, you want indeed to have sort of stabilized uh, token value because if I use it on my platform and my own company is an example for that, uh, we don't have a token yet, but we will in the future uh, discover it. Um, if I um, sell content on my platform and my token increases from one dollar per token to hundred dollars to five dollars to twenty five dollars, um, then the, the price has to be adjusted constantly. So you don't that doesn't really work. Um, I think so. You need to have some sort of a stabilized period. Having said that, we are really at the beginning in, in, the, in the blockchain revolution, right. you know, so people really have no, not yet an idea of what's going on, what's happening. And I, I would dare to say that, you know, blockchain is as far as the internet was in 1994 or perhaps 1995. So we're really at the beginning of, of the, 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 uh, a decentralized economy um, and moving from a centralized economy, which we have known for the past a couple hundred years, or well, since ever, um, to a decentralized economy where uh, consumers have power over their own identity, has, have power over their own um, data, have power over their own finances, uh, where governments have to re really readjust how they deal with their citizens, uh, that changes everything. And that's, that, that's, that change, that paradigm shift, 
is not done within within two years or three years. It takes right. a decade, two decades. Can you have an autonomous organization without a token? Or is it really part of the underlying machinery? It's really part of the underlying machinery, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, and how in practice would that work? I mean, we, we sort of know in, in sort of corporate law that there are these entities that can exist without people. I mean, there are trusts. I mean, there's sort of the legal notion of a corporation. Um, and, and they can even, you know, there can even be essentially code behind those about orders of, you know, why they exist in their charter. So they, these things can exist without people as, as entities. But these new types of autonomous organizations, they could potentially be quite active. They could trade, they could interact with each yep. other, buy property. Yeah, uh, yeah. a decentralized autonomous organization or, or DAO in short, um, basically is and acts and seems like and behaves just like a normal company. Right. It has suppliers, it has customers, it, has, uh, it can hire freelancers. It doesn't have any employees, uh, but it can hire people to do things for them. Um, it has shareholders. Um, um, so it, it creates data, so it's basically exactly the same thing as a company, without management and without employees. Well, when you say without management, uh, in a sense there is a management layer, which is the, the set of code, uh, the set of rules at the yeah. heart, heart of the yeah. organization. Does that need to be fixed, or could you essentially have a small management team that's constantly tweaking the... Yeah, but then it's not called a DAO. Oh, right, because, because, it's, it, because in order to truly be uh, a DAO, it has to be essentially engineered and then set free. Yeah, yeah. so a DAO works that, that people who build the DAO, um, um, they create the DAO and they put it on the blockchain, they decentralize it. The moment it's on the blockchain, it becomes immutable, um, verifiable and traceable, and, and, and then it's set free. And then it works in, in the world, you know? Um, but if you would have sort of a management that would adjust it, you wouldn't have a decentralized platform. It'd be like changing the rules of blockchain, of Bitcoin all the time. Yeah, yeah. And you wouldn't have this decentralized autonomous organization because it's decentralized because you can't alter it. And it's autonomous because it has smart contracts to make decisions based on the input and output of data. So, um, yes, you have sort of a management in there, which is like, like in this, as you say, the code. But that, and that has been created by the shareholders, right. which can be decoders. Uh, but once it's set free, there's no more management involved. So these organizations um, can be dynamic, but they wouldn't, they'd be immutable. Essentially, their behavior wouldn't change. They yeah. just would react according to yeah. certain... Certain out output and input. And um, so, so what I say in my, in my research, research that I do is that you need three uh, components for a successful DAO. That's having big data analytics to analyze all of our data that's coming in, having artificial intelligence to make you know, automated decisions based on that data and, and, and to discover patterns in the, in the vast amount of data, and then have blockchain to make it decentralized and, and autonomous by using smart contracts. So you have something happens and then the output um, of that uh, it can be analyzed and that the, the analytics of that go into a smart contracts, something happens, etc. Um, so if you have those three combined, then you, you have uh, the components. Why, why would you need the AI though? Because the kind of trading rules are established in the, in the smart contracts. True, but you want to have AI within uh, within the, the, the company as well. You, know, you want to have uh, artificial intelligence to to um, automate whatever, you know, all, all the different components. For example, right. if you have a DAO of self-driving cars, you know, the self-driving car is the AI. Um, and you have, a, um, it's like, um, I think that's... Or the AI could execute the orders of the DAO. Yeah, for example, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. So uh, an example that I always use is you have a, a, 
uh, Uber 3.0, you know, where, which, where Uber has turned into a full DAO, where they have self-driving cars running into a city and you order one with your app, uh, which has been created initially by the share shareholders. And this car drives around and makes money and, and you know, analyzes the behavior of the, of the market. And once the car is almost finished, it orders itself a new car based on market demand and drives itself to the scrapyard. Mm. Um, and there's, there's no people in, have to be involved in this entire company. Um, if it's on, on, on the blockchain, you don't need any staff to, to, to run it, um, which I think is a fascinating concept <laughs> and is completely changes how we think of organizations. So, uh, you know, if you're a kind of a master level, in, in, if you look back to the 60s and 70s when you had these organizations buying, you know, they became conglomerates into many industries. Could you eventually have some sort of um, master organization that its job is to generate and essentially own and direct these DAO kind of subsidiaries? I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, that's definitely possible, you know, because right. in the end, the DAO, a DAO has to be created by someone, you know, right. unless we develop AI that can do that, but that would be really far future. Uh, but, but yeah, you need to... Can you still retain control of these DAO entities once they've been set free? No, once they've been set free, they all... So how do you profit from them? Well, you, the, the, the company makes a profit and that's being given back to the shareholders, of course. Uh, but right. but the uh, the DAO is on the blockchain and is ah so you still you still have equity I mean yeah of course of right. course okay yeah, yeah, yeah. no definitely so, so if I create a DAO I put the DAO on the blockchain and if the DAO does its thing and makes money and and that money flows back to me um, right. and then I make a profit for that so so you know the reason why Mike is asking this is I'm trying to work out what is the future of human agency in all of this. And there's, if you look at modern corporations today, there's clearly lots and lots of people that are doing very repetitive um, tasks which could be eliminated with smart contracts. Mm -hmm. So would a better use of those people would be sitting in potentially a high level organization, potentially creating or working on designing DAOs, um, you know, proactively automating more of their own activity. So essentially finding a way to uh, add more, human cognitive value rather than yeah. processing could be um, although I do think that the amount of people required for that will only be limited right um, you know you only and it's very specialized it's too. very very specialized you need to have some sort of a, yeah, a level of education as well uh, which you know, unfortunately not many people have uh, you need to have a master degree and uh, or, or, or bachelor degree uh, but if, yeah minimum bachelor degree and um, you know a lot of, of the work currently done is very rep repetitive work which uh, is important at the moment but just you know m a lot of those jobs will be outsourced to AI. Yeah. There's a lot of research about that which states that 40-50% uh, of the jobs in the next decades will disappear and I completely believe that yeah. um, because everything that, 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 that uh, um, uh, an artificial intelligence can do better than humans, which is a lot, um, it will do. Well, see, even the big banks in Australia are going to eliminate 20,000 jobs next yeah. year. Yeah. Ah. So. Ah, you know, there's, there's <laughs> this, this company, um, uh, JP Morgan Chase, um, they build a, ch a chatbot. Um, just for their IT request on, you know, I lost my passport, my password, and those kind of things. Um, and it, it took jobs over 140 people, mm. same amount of work, you know, just by one chatbot. Um, and I think that's, that's an example of that shows that um, you cannot deny that artificial intelligence will take over jobs. If you, if you, do, if you do deny that, I think you, you, have, you, you miss something. So uh, there's, there's going to be a transition period. And, and, and uh, although many of these sort of decisions or skills, especially around big data and analytics, will be eventually taken over by machines. We're going to go through a good five or ten years when 
you're still going to need a lot of people to do a lot of this analysis. Yep. So if you're a leader today and you're trying to arm yourself with the skills you know, to survive this transition period, what are the things that you think are most important to be able to do or to understand? Well, I think you should um, see your organization as a data organization. Right. And a lot of, I talk to a lot of companies and, and um, they don't see that yet. You know, for example, a car company, they think they are a car company, you know, right. which is very logical because they have always been a car company. But I think they should not see themselves as a car company, but that they should see themselves as a company that helps people move from A to B. Hmm. And that's completely different. It's a software business at that point. Yeah, yeah. Or data, I call it a data business, yeah. but a software business, yeah. So, and that, that completely changes the game because all of a sudden, if you are a company that uh, moves people from A to B, you don't, you don't necessarily need to have a car. You can have some other mode of transport, like a drone or whatever, you know? Uh, but having a different perspective um, changes everything within the company. You know, it requires different uh, different customer touch points, different processes, different management, different whatever, uh, different job skills that you require, etc. So um, I think organizations that want to prepare for this transition, and this, this will happen, you know, we will move to a more data-driven society, um, they need to see the company as a data company. What, what does that mean in terms of day-to-day executive capability though. I mean, how much data do you need to understand? Do you need to understand statistics? Do you need to be able to, you know, challenge the veracity of the data sample? Do you need to be able to use Tableau? I mean, like what what what, what is sort of the well, it depends on which level we're talking about. But if you're yeah. talking board level, um, I think it's important that, that you need to have some sort of understanding of what how data big data AI works. You know, you don't need to be able to do an analysis, or you don't need to have to build a mathematical model or right. to build an algorithm because you have much more talented people to do that for you. Right. Uh, but you need to be able to understand what it means. And what the stakes are. Yeah. And what it means if all of a sudden you're, you are a data business. What does it mean to you? What are suddenly, what are the possibilities if all the processes within your organization create data? And how can you use that? And how does that change your decision making capabilities? And how does it change your day to day business? What if you're, a, what if you're middle management though? This is where I'm struggling because I, I sort of understand a high level. You need a high level view, but for the kind of you know day to day leaders that are coming up through the organisation, that are trying to be a VP and stuff like that, like what, what do they need to be able to do? Well, I think the the lower you go into an organisation, um, the more an understanding you need to have of, of of how this big data works for you. So I think uh, if you if you want to. Uh, from from the in the past, you had decisions would come in from your, your reporting department once a month, and you had to act on that within your department, for example, and within your marketing department, for example, or your finance department. Nowadays, these decisions come in in real time. Yeah. So and that alone changes already the way you should work. Um, so you should, as a middle management, you should be able to deal with that, you know, be able to make decisions on the fly based on data and not only on, you know, we always used to do that and, you know, I've been a VP for 20 years or whatever and I know how this works. Uh, no, because the data might say differently. Um, and that change in mindset, I think, is really, really important. Right. So th- this, there's something about being acquainted to the, the increased speed of decision making required by real-time data. Um, and I guess also the ability to be able to uh, have a data-based conversation or strategy with the other people in your group. Like, mm-hmm. And this is one of the things I've always admired about Amazon is that they're very, they're a very fact-driven organization. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think what you can see from from any of the um, um, you know the tech companies that that that, that 
became the monopolies after the, 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 the dot-com bubble, uh, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, whatever, um, they have this, this purely data-driven approach, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and I think Amazon is a great example about that. When they, when they, when they added this recommendation engine uh, within their ad platform, I think their sales went up like 30% or so. Yeah. Uh, so you, you see that, that these companies, they understand that data is their asset. Um, and all, a lot of other organizations don't see that yet. Um, and I think if they want to survive, they have to see that. If you were coming up the organization in the kind of the, the eight, late 80s and 90s, Excel was sort of your weapon of choice. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, to, to, to the extent it actually became damaging because uh, everyone would create models and they'd talk about the models. And, uh, and it's, there's sort of a new trend now of... Uh, in some organizations letting people actually design applications like you know this sort of no code revolution mm-hmm. uh, as we sort of move data onto these sort of more common platforms I mean, do you really see that the, sort of the skill with these enterprise data platforms is sort of becoming the new excel could be could definitely be the case um, i think as an um, organization you, you should work towards creating you know a much more tailored approach i think uh, because for a certain enterprise application might be good for, for your company, might not be good for my company. And if you would work on the same thing, I don't think that would work. Um, for the smaller organizations, I think, you know, that, that, that's, that sort of standardization works. Um, but for the really big Fortune 1000 companies, they have to have this very tailor-made approach on, on building applications and for their particular need. Right. So where do you think this is going to go in the future? I mean, if we take the, your sort of three favorite topics of, of blockchain, AI, and um, um, sorry, big data, big data. Uh, what, is a, what is a smart organization and a smart human in that scenario? Um, I mean, what doesn't get automated? Like, well, where is sort of the patch where the, the last remaining humans will sort of cower in fear? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think as an organization, you should find a balance between um, um, uh, making your organization more efficient, mm. um, but preventing that your organization becomes uh, very distant and not customer focused. Uh, because it's, it's very easy to build an organization which is completely automated. And uh, if I have, as a customer have a question, you know, constantly walk into a wall because I can't reach you because right. I, you know, um, a and highly then, efficient fascist organization. Yeah, you know, <laughs> if, if we have a chatbot that, that works 80% of the time and does not really per- understand my particular case because of my background and my history and whatever, you know, um, that would really frustrate me. So I think there should be a balance between finding this efficiency as, as well as having still a, a customer-focused approach. Um, and I think um, um, organizations that forget this, the customer will not survive because in the end, you know, you need the customers to, 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 to buy your product. And, and, and the idea of a great experience is a very intangible, human thing to be yeah. perceived. You, yeah. you, you can't really put that as a training set for a machine learning algorithm to try and understand. Not yet, I think. Not yet. Yeah, and maybe in the future, but yeah. you know, if I had a horrible experience, experience with the, the product of a company and then I call and then the customer service representative helps me and is perfect, you know, that would completely change my opinion and could make me into a life, long life com- uh, customer. Right. Um, and uh, so, so part of the efficiency is knowing when to deploy the humans to the humans. Yeah. Yeah, 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 um, and I think that's that 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 is uh, crucial. Yeah, I'm, I'm I have a long 
background from a long, long time ago in the in hospitality industry. Right. And what I always you know, say when I go out for dinner is, you know, the, uh, the food can, can be fantastic, but if the service is crap, I won't come back. Um, uh, but the other, if the other way around, if I know it's a good restaurant, but the, ser- <laughs> but the food is okay, but the service is fantastic, you have a lot back, bigger chance that I come back. Right. Uh, you know, this, 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 this customer approach is, I think that's so vital. And I think a lot of people, a lot of organizations still forget that, but that's crucial, I think. The, the, this idea of the very human aspects of experience is, is often lost when you, when you see the academics talking about organizations. True. You know, when they talk about the firm and, yeah. and why firms exist. Yeah. Um, uh, so so how, how, do you sort of, how do you sort of reconcile the two? Because you've got, there's, a, there's a bunch of interesting research about how we experience things and, and the reason why we're loyal and, and why we make decisions. And there's a bunch of research about, economic research about why firms exist. Yeah. Um, well, I think the, the, the research that's done by academics, um, um, I think is extremely va- va- valuable to, to better understand us humans and, and us organizations because right. we have still, for a large part, still no clue how we work, you know? Uh, we have an idea how we work and how our brain works, but I think there's a lot of things that we don't understand yet. Um, um, and, and I think in that part, because we are all humans and we might not understand each other um, from an academic perspective, but we know how we just behave in day-to-day world, I think that's... Now that 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 aspect is is key within organizations. The, the human, especially aspect. when it comes to collaboration. Yeah, right? yeah, absolutely. And, and and especially also when we when we see that we're moving away from pure human to human collaboration to more human to machine, and eventually machine to machine collaboration. Well, what what is you know when you, uh, in a way, we've now become more interested in the idea of human to human collaboration, because if you take people out of the transactional processing, you actually want them to create interesting creative ideas. Yeah, I think this is what people call sort of the dynamic capability yeah, of, of organizations, yeah, yeah. right? Uh, but what are, how do the dynamics change when you introduce a non-human entity into that circle? Well, that, that's fascinating. And that's actually <laughs> <laughs> what I'm doing research on at the right. moment, uh, because we don't know yet. You know, We have no idea what happens when we introduce the artificial within an organization. Do people treat the artificial as a human? Could like, be. like a slack box, yeah, right? Yeah, could be. You know, if you talk about, about bots, chatbots, you, know, you could be very well um, uh, have the idea that you talk to a human. But that can also go backfire massively, as we saw with, with uh, the, the chatbot Tay, which was launched two years ago by Microsoft. Right. You know, which became, uh, I think, a full-on racist or Nazi within a couple of hours, you know? Um, so that can seriously backfire. Um, and um, I think... Yeah, moving from from pure human actors within your organization to like yeah, really intelligent actors within your organization, we need to be able to understand what does that mean for our organization, and and, and I think we that requires a lot more research. Uh, yeah, as well. it's we, we love to anthropomorphize yeah. technology. Yeah. You, yeah. you know, I mean, and we make it worse for ourselves by giving things names yeah. and, and getting the, to make stupid Siri jokes. Yeah, um, but. I mean, the positive side of that is that people find it less threatening. The, the downside is that it, it becomes more opaque. Yeah. You know, we don't understand the, you know, the things that have gone on to drive that behavior. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that the, the whole idea of, of uh, hey, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, I think we also don't understand how, how far it can reach. You know? uh, what, what you see is that people think of intelligence as the skill of the village idiot to Einstein. But actually, the scale of intelligence is a lot bigger. You know, it goes from from a mouse 
um, to uh, a super artificial intelligent being, which is a million times brighter than, than humans. Yeah. And then the scale of, of the village idiot to Einstein is very, very small. Yeah. Um, and, um, and people don't, a lot of people don't understand that yet. But, but you know, artificial intelligence is being created completely different from human intelligence. Uh, human intelligence was created uh, by a very dumb system called evolution, which yeah. is just purely a uh, trial and error. Um, and um, you, know, you could say that human intelligence was not created in the most optimized way. Uh, we have you know, all kinds of trade-offs uh, of food uh, availability, or organs, other organs in our body, uh, space in our head, you know. Um, and um, on the other hand, artificial intelligence is created by intelligent beings, you know, who have the possibility to to think uh, to f to think you know in, in uh, ahead and think in the future and to s and to to s and to think what can happen if we do a certain action. Um, evolution didn't have that capability, so you could say that artificial intelligence, also with having ma mater using materials which are optimized for intelligence, uh, will behave completely different from human intelligence. How? They, they no idea. Probably not, they probably should not even be measured on the same scale. I mean, in some ways, human intelligence, trial and error aside, evolved to survive its environment and mm -hmm. also to survive each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true. Right. And, and, and however we design machine intelligence, it probably won't be just designed to survive other machines. No, true. Ab absolutely correct. And, uh, but that's, that's interesting. And so also, um, so a couple of weeks ago, at the end of 2017, um, uh, AlphaGo Zero was launched. Yeah, um, which taught itself how to play, right? Yes, which taught itself how to play by playing against its own, uh, op uh, in a, its own self. And it taught AlphaGo itself in three days. Uh, it was better at AlphaGo in three days than the best AlphaGo player existed. Right. And uh, so within three days, it learned itself, it taught itself 3,000, 4,000 year history of the game of Go. Without having to look at any of it. Correct. And this was always, I think, the assumption that machines would learn from the history of humanity's yeah. mistakes and learnings, but it didn't need, it just needed the bounded rules of play. Yeah. And then that's the interesting part, because what happened then is that it came up with all kinds of new strategies, new moves, new approaches that we would have never thought, thought of, mm. or perhaps only would come up in like a thousand years from now. Yeah. And the AI did that altogether in, in 40 days. And I think they are, after a few weeks, they did the same thing on, on I think, the game of chess. You know, it taught itself to play chess within, within days. Mm. Came up with moves and, and that, that, that seems so ridiculous to us, but we're so smart. Uh, I think that's just, you know, it's, it's scary and it, fascinating. It's hilarious to think that we once thought chess would be like an AI complete problem, right? <laughs> yeah. Like you solve chess and you've created a sentient machine. Yeah. Um, all that seems to happen is we create better machines and we have to keep changing our borders of what intelligence yeah. really means. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, Marcus, wonderful chatting with you. I feel like we could talk for hours about all of this. So uh, <laughs> I think so we can. <laughs> so uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, happy to be here. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds. <laughs>